You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. And so, after 35 years in the service of my country, I return to Russell, Kansas, to the place I call home. I've known Bob Dole ever since he was born. To the small town that nurtured and defined me. To my friends and my family. This is me, and this is Bob. To that very special place. There's only one Bob Dole. Where they always call me by my first name. Bob! Bob! Bob. Max, how you doing? Good to see you. Great lunch. Barb, take a check. Of course, Bob. Can I see some ID? Driver's license, passport, military ID, voters... Maybe it's time you tried the Visa check card. It automatically deducts from your checking account everywhere Visa's accepted. No questions asked, no ID needed. I, I just can't win. The Visa check card. It works like a check, only better. Your man wants to look his best. Don't make Tony nervous to come here. <laughs> Not around the ears, right? <laughs> A day for sad goodbyes. We love you. So much. Thank you so much. A day for choking back tears. So the Bible tells us to everything there is a season. And I think my season in Senate is about to come to an end. You nearly lost it that yep. first minute, didn't you? It's, uh, well, it's tough. A day for a high-spirited send-off. <laughs> Tonight, the last day in the era of Senator Bob Dole, the first day of Mr. Dole's campaign for president. <laughs> This is ABC News Nightline, reporting from Capitol Hill, Ted Koppel. It's not visible from here, but this is a changed institution tonight. Bob Dole, who served eight years in the House and nearly 28 years in the Senate, left Congress today, as few of its members do, voluntarily and before his term was up. At this hour, he is a candidate for president, nothing more, nothing less. It is a campaign, he decided some weeks ago, that requires his full energy and attention. But even though decision was made and announced weeks ago, this is the day it took effect. And for Bob Dole, his Senate staff, and colleagues, it was bound to be a day that fluctuated between the banal and the historic, from the momentous to the mundane. It's not altogether clear why, but someone has convinced America's political establishment that if you are running for the highest office in the land, you should be seen and photographed doing something basic, something all Americans can identify with. Did your wife? Oh, good. I'll pay for it. Thank you. Feel all me. 
And so it was that Bob Dole began this momentous day in his life by going to the dry cleaner. Gonna get a quick shot here? All right, right here. Put you in the middle. With cameras on hand to record his every move today, Senator Dole poses with a family that wants its picture taken with him. It is a photo op within a photo op. Thank you. Good luck to you. Three solid votes for you. <laughs> that might be the difference. There is very little room inside Dole's town car beyond the senator, his driver, a Secret Service agent, and time photographer P.F. Bentley. If I want to interview Senator Dole on his last commute to Capitol Hill, and I do, I'll have to shoot it myself on a high 8 camera. I was figuring out this morning that you must have made this trip. I don't know if you've been living at yeah. the Watergate all the time. Since 1973. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be over 10,000 yeah, times right. you run up to the hill from here. That's why I don't know if this uh, tomorrow whether the car will turn in or not. It may <laughs> take me right to the Capitol. When you made your speech the other day announcing that you were going to do this, you got a little misty-eyed there. You must have very mixed feelings as you as you ride up to the hill this morning. You know, I've never really thought how people must feel when they leave their job, whether it's whatever their job may be, if they've worked there 10, 20, 30 years, and then one day they, it's over. So you sort of appreciate how millions of people might think about their last day of work. We're going to go back in the White House this morning, right? Yes, sir. So I've had a chance to peer in there every morning and take a little look at it and say, well, not a bad address. Okay, well, upscale, okay. Okay. Yeah, but the uh, the downside of that, Senator, is you you lose all that anonymity that That's you've right. had all these years. Right? I've thought about that. It's almost like uh, well, maybe not incarceration, but it's it really limits your freedom. We're getting a little taste of that now. I mean, the Secret Service does a great job. And, we're used to emptying the garbage without escorts. We just passed the White House. Yeah. Like a little tent up there, must be something going on. You two are starting to gather. <laughs> Getting in the early line. I often wonder how thoughtful people like you, like Bill Clinton. I mean, this is not a partisan thing. Right. How, how you ever adjust to the sort of uh, grassroots campaigning, you know, I mean, that nonsense of having to lean out a window right. and then wave at the passersby. Sometimes they wave back, sometimes they don't. You don't even know if they're looking in this direction. That's, that's got to grind away at you. It does a little, little bit, but on the other hand, when people... Uh, I think part of it, I know Clinton likes people, I like people. I hate to pass up anybody when somebody's out there waiting, particularly children or older people. And uh, all they want to do is say hello. I'm going to raise the age issue in a way you're going to like. I heard this morning Strom Thurmond is out there campaigning in the Carolinas. <laughs> he's 93 years old, and he's out there down in Carolina doing the same thing you're doing up here. He's amazing. Straw made a banana, I ate a banana, whatever it is, I want to try it. He'd, he'd come to me and say, no, I've got to I've got to be in South Carolina this morning. But I'll be back at 1 o'clock. I don't want to miss any votes. I don't think he's missed a vote the last two or three years. I think there have been some changes the time I've, even the time I've been here. I mean, we don't seem to have enough time for each other. 
Everybody's on the run. Everybody's running to the airport or running to a TV studio or with all the technology and all the instant communication. Uh, you know, maybe if we just slow down a bit, it might help. But... In the basement of the U.S. Capitol is a barber shop. In this case, the pictures of the famous on the wall really do belong to customers in search of a trim. Senator Dole has been walking these tunnels, which connect the various congressional office buildings, for 35 years. Might as well get on television here. That's right away. <laughs> You'll pass. I'll pass. Thank you, but you won't let me. Good morning. Yeah, right. Good luck. Well, thank Good you luck. very much. For you. Good. Tony, get my hair fixed up and ready to go. You look terrific. <laughs> this will be his last congressional subway ride as a senator. Is there anything symbolic to this? We're going to be riding backwards into the future here? Or <laughs> yeah, there... right. What? You can see where you've been this way. You can see where you've been. That's, That's right. exactly right. Well, you've been a lot of places. Yeah. <laughs> I've been a lot of places years. around here, right? This is ABC News Nightline, brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield. How we doing? This clearly is not going to be just another day at the office for the majority leader of the U.S. Senate. There's more cameramen that way. There will be a few moments not noted by reporters or recorded by cameras, but not many. How do you feel about actually leaving this body which you've been a part of for 35 years? Well, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be difficult in a sense, but it's also, uh, you know, you're sort of stepping into something very exciting and... How we doing? Good. Got the coffee made? Yep. Better get my last free cup. Much on this last day is being said for the benefit of eavesdropping cameras and also to conceal the much deeper emotions that are churning just beneath the surface. His chief of staff, Sheila Burke, is a wife and mother and has worked for Senator Dole for 19 years. Um, I also have with me, whenever you want to deal with them, um, all of your retirement papers and insurance have forms. to do that today, or? Um, no, we can do it. I can do it this afternoon. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In a few hours, a couple of days at most, this will be someone else's office. The pictures, the papers, the mementos of a lifetime are being boxed up by a staff, only half of whom will follow Senator Dole onto the campaign trail. This must be a very tough day for you. It is a hard day, uh, but it's also with that, a day of some relief. I mean, a day when he's going out and I think doing what he needs to do. Uh, it's a decision he feels very comfortable with. And I think that's helped the rest of us get through the transition as well. Elizabeth Dole, the senator's wife, has been worried about how he will take leaving the Senate after all these years. It is not a sentiment she will share with the reporter. What you're leaving behind is almost as important, maybe more important, than what lies ahead. Well, again, it's a, it's a, a wonderful experience, a great family, your extended family in the Senate, something we'll cherish forever. But Bob's the kind of person who makes a decision and doesn't look back. He's moving forward. And then finally, it is time to take the Senate floor for a farewell address to his colleagues. Is that it? Yep. Here we go. Come on. The U.S. Senate is a place of protocol, tradition, and even these days, civility. Beyond that, Bob Dole is respected and well-liked. 
The Senate gallery is packed, and all around Capitol Hill, business comes to a halt as people glued to their television sets watch Bob Dole struggle with his emotions. Well, I want to thank all of my colleagues. For the first minute or so, it is not altogether clear that the senator will be able to master his own feelings, but gradually, as he looks around, he finds stability in the familiar faces of his colleagues. The Bible tells us to everything there is a season. And I think my season in the Senate is about to come to an end. But the new season before me makes this moment far less the closing of one chapter than the opening of another. And we all take pride in the past, but we all live for the future. As he leaves the floor, Dole shakes hands with his old friend and adversary, Ted Kennedy. Well, he jokes, echoing a line made famous by Richard Nixon more than 30 years ago. Well, you won't have Bob Dole to kick around anymore. His Senate colleagues have named a balcony after him. It is next to the Senate Majority Leader's office, and because he used to sit in the sun out here, it used to be known as Dole's Beach. I think they're going to be allowed uh, sort of members' privileges to be able to come out here, put your feet up there every <laughs> oh, once in a while. I think so. I, oh, I think, uh, but I don't, you know, I, I've known some members who left here, and, and I don't think I've, they've ever come back. Others, they find it hard. I mean, they, they come back and they want to see their friends. I think some wish they probably hadn't left. But I'll be coming back uh, to talk about my agenda. I visit with the leadership, the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate. That'll be a while, but uh, there'll be a little withdrawal here that mixed feelings. But I've, you know, I've already crossed that. Uh, I made that decision on May 15th. I was I'm right. It ought to be done. And so I feel peace with myself. You nearly. I think you had a lot of people on your staff a little worried there for the first minute of your speech there. You nearly lost it the yep. first minute, didn't you? It's, uh, well, it's tough. What was, what was going through your mind at that point? Well, you, you, so you look around, you see people you've worked with, worked against. But as you know, having covered Capitol and had numerous senators on Nightline, despite all the sound and fury up here, there's a lot of friendship. It's now... Uh, <laughs> About 25 of three. Are you, are you citizen dole already? You know, I found myself over? in the policy lines looking at the clock. Sort of watching your last of, minutes ticking away? 15 of, 10 of, 3 of. The next time I looked, it was straight up to. I said, well, that's it. I said to myself, that's it. But, uh, so that's, but I got a lot of good friends, and they'll be here if I need them. As we're completing our interview, there's a phone call from the White House. Mr. President, how you doing? And then joined once more by Mrs. Dole, another photo op. The balcony will be a permanent reminder now of who Bob Dole was. See you later. Who he will be. Whether he will ever occupy the White House will be determined over the next five months.
Just after 3 p.m., Bob Dole walks out of the Capitol for the first time as a former senator. It seems unlikely that anything he has experienced on this remarkable day could have matched the sight that awaited him at the top of the Capitol stairs. Oh, great! As he waded into the sea of well-wishers, cameras, and microphones to begin in earnest the long march toward November, Dole paused several times to soak up the crowd's affectionate send-off. And then he was off to his nearby campaign headquarters for a round of political meetings and one final interview at the end of a very long day. There is speculation once again that Dole may yet turn to Colin Powell to join his ticket, that in fact his latest public statement showing tolerance for pro-choice Republicans was designed with Powell in mind. I think Colin Powell, if I'm any judge, meant what he said at his press conference uh, last year. He took a look at the presidency, he thought about it, he pondered, he studied, and he decided no way, no elective office in 1996. Now, I didn't broach that question to him on Saturday night. We talked sort of around it. I think, I think General Powell meant it when he said he is not interested an elected office in 1996. All right, you've, you've now twice in the last minute given a very tough emphasis to the word elective office. Would you like to see him in the Dole administration? Well, I have great respect. Well, yes, the answer is yes, certainly would. And I'm very proud he's a Republican. Uh, I don't have this narrow vision that I only want my kind of Republicans in the Republican Party. So, I mean, a Colin Powell theoretically, the uh, Secretary look, of State, look Secretary look of Defense. foreign policy experience he's had. Sure. Uh, Chief of Staff, I mean, it's, it's worlds of experience that would bring an instant credibility to any administration. So, I mean, it's not unreasonable to think of him as a possible Secretary of State? Not unreasonable at all. I mean, of course, he may think it's unreasonable, but I'm not trying to, you know, I think he's made a judgment on elective office, and I respect that. And my view is that... Uh, you know, I'd like him, uh, and in fact, we, he did indicate if I want to call him on any foreign policy, defense matter, just pick up the phone. Let's, <clears throat> let's end the day as we, as we began at Senator Dole. That was a long time ago. <laughs> well, it's, it, and it's, it's only, have another cup of coffee. it's we only 7 o'clock. Well, it's been about, been about 12 hours since right. we started this day. Um, would you be kind enough to sum it up for me? This has been, uh, has to have been an emotional day for you, an historic day for you. Uh, it is it is the end of what was certainly the largest investment of your political life, right? Well, I must say, uh, just to sum it up, you know, I woke up early this morning thinking of a lot of things that I wanted to say or wanted to do, and, and I wanted to leave in style. I mean, I didn't want emotion to take over. And so I sort of steeled myself uh, throughout the morning, and I've learned maybe that's not a problem for professionals, but if you don't look directly at people, then you can avoid some of this. Uh. But as I stood there in the well of the Senate for the last time at the leader's desk, I thought about a lot of things I didn't even say, about the good times and bad times in the Senate. We've had some pretty tough battles, but I wanted to leave there with everybody understanding that Bob Dole had been fair. Partisan, yes. 
Tough at times, yes. Demanding, yes. Work all night, yes. But you have to be fair. And when Senator Carol Mosley Braun came over and said, you know, you've always been fair, I knew I'd, my message had been received. You could have run again. You could have stayed there. <laughs> I know the first day of full-time campaign, which begins tomorrow, is not the time to even, <laughs> to even back. think about the possibility of uh, defeat. But you think you might be sitting there in November saying, damn, why, no. did, I, why did I quit? <clears throat> I think as I tried to say it then, I had a little trouble there, but the Bible says about the season. And I think my time had come, you know, win or lose in November. I've heard you quoted as saying that Mrs. Dole hasn't been sleeping well ever since your decision well, to quit She was worried about me. She called me from California last week and said, I'm worried, uh, you know, uh, are you getting along all right? Said she'd been thinking about it. And she, oh, she slept, but she said she'd been worried about it. I said, Jim, not going to bed at 10 o'clock and sleeping like a baby. And uh, so I think she slept much better since then. But uh, it's been, uh, I knew the time was going to come. And I picked the 11th because uh, I thought it would take about three weeks after I said, I'm out of here to really get out of there. But it's been a, as I said, it's been, on a, been a great ride. I hope, uh, you know, I hope, I hope we've made a difference. Well, I've made a difference. It's been a long time since anyone has said this to you, but uh, Mr. Dole, thank you. Thank you. Bob Dole's quiet departure from his campaign headquarters stood in marked contrast to his triumphant last walk out of the Senate. Senator Dole, now Citizen Dole, Candidate Dole, begins the first day of the rest of his political life. From Senate Majority Leader's office to campaign headquarters is more than symbolic, involving much more than just a change in atmosphere. The Senate, after all, is a collegial place where results can only be achieved by compromise. Today, Bob Dole exchanged a sure thing for what must still be regarded as a long shot. But then few thought that Truman would beat Dewey, or for that matter, at this time four years ago, that Clinton would beat Bush. It's a gamble. Today, Bob Dole bet it all. That's our report for tonight. I'm Ted Koppel on Capitol Hill. For all of us here at ABC News, good night. is a presentation of ABC News. More Americans get their news from ABC News than from any other source. Dole's final column. Too many of us have sacrificed too much. This is Senator Bob Dole's final op-ed. He began drafting it with pen and paper in October and finished it on November 23rd. Dwight Eisenhower said that America is best described by the word freedom. It's an all-purpose sort of word one that we salute like the flag on the 4th of July, even if no two of us define it in exactly the same way. This gives rise to a perpetual tug-of-war between those on the left who look to an activist government to broker economic security and a level playing field without which democratic capitalism can degenerate into mere survival of the fittest, and those on the right who pursue freedom from 
especially from heavy-handed dictation, stifling taxes, or over-regulation that can smother individual initiative and discourage social mobility. Conservatives put their faith in the marketplace, even while conceding its imperfections. When I was growing up in Dust Bowl, Kansas, drought didn't wear a party label. I saw too many decent, hard-working people, exponents of rugged individualism, who played by the rules but were denied prosperity by factors beyond their control, or Washington's. In the U.S. Army, I submitted to the temporary regimentation required to ensure an Allied victory. It didn't erode my self-reliant values, but it did reinforce my belief in teamwork, and in why teamwork is needed in Washington now more than ever. During my years in Congress, Democrats and Republicans were political combatants, but were, we were also friends. I learned that it is difficult to get anything done unless you can compromise. Not your principles, but your willingness to see the other side. Those who suggest that compromise is a sign of weakness misunderstand the fundamental strength of our democracy. Conservatives as innovators. During my early years in the Senate, eager to demonstrate that conservatives could be legislative innovators, I supported Richard Nixon's small government small government approach to national health insurance and welfare reform. Later, I worked across the aisle and with the George H.W. Bush White House to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act. Finally, nothing in public life gave me more satisfaction than teaming up with my Democratic colleague, Senator George McGovern, to combat hunger in this country and abroad. We set aside past political battles because putting food on the table is the least partisan act imaginable. Today, I am proud to say that our work lives on with the USDA's McGovern Dole International Food for Education and Child Nutrition Program. This initiative supports educational efforts to, to some of the most impoverished areas around the globe, while also fostering child development and food security in low-income, food-deficit countries. President Harry Truman famously observed that the chief function of the modern presidency is persuasion. But what if our leaders, whatever their politics, find themselves shouting into the wind in a culture incapable of working across a partisan political divide? Meaningful change comes to the country when everyone puts aside their party label and works for the good of the country. That is why, 15 years ago, I teamed up with Senator Howard Baker and two former Democratic rivals, Senator George Mitchell and Senator Tom Daschle, to create the Bipartisan Policy Center. It is critical to understand that we did not create the nonpartisan, postpartisan, or metapartisan policy center. A functioning democracy thrives on debate between those with opposing views. The bipartisan policy center is a unique place where proud partisans validate American democracy by proving we need not agree on everything to agree on some. None of this is easy. In Congress, as in life, it always helps to have an eye for the big picture. These deep-seated political divisions are playing out within each party. But with the Democrats now in control, it is especially evident as I watch from the sidelines of this tug-of-war between progressives and more moderates. I can speak from experience on this as well. When votes came and we lost, we did not have time for hard feelings. The next day needed to be business as usual as we moved on to the next battle. I remember an intra-party fight over a balanced budget amendment. The vote was 50-50. When we lost, 
a couple of my Republican colleagues wanted to ban from the party the senator who voted against the amendment. My political opponent on one day often became a friend and supporter on another day. I never took it personally, nor should those in Congress today. None of this is easy, any more than finding a definition of freedom with which 330 million Americans can agree. This much we know. Too many of us have sacrificed too much in defending that freedom from foreign adversaries to allow our democracy to crumble under a state of infighting that grows more unacceptable by the day. Take it from Eisenhower and the dwindling band of brothers who fought under the, his command. Together, we must learn how to, comp to compose differences, not with arms, but with in intellect and decent purpose. And take it from me, our history is rich with political debate and deep divisions, but collectively, we share a common purpose for a better America. We cannot let political differences stand in the way of that common good. Yes, Mark. I'm still very proud of the vote I cast for Dwight Eisenhower. I'm certainly not Dwight Eisenhower, but you want to cast a vote that you be proud of tomorrow and next year and 10 years and 20 years and 30 years from now. I've said this over and over and over again, that the proudest vote I ever cast was for Bob Dole. He said that on the campaign trail in 1996 over and over again, that the proudest vote he ever cast was for Dwight Eisenhower, and that he hoped that, in, that he was not, Bob Dole was not Dwight Eisenhower, but that he hoped that 20 and 30 and 10 years down the road, that you would still be proud of your vote in 1996. Well, in 2021, I'm still very proud of the vote that I cast for Bob Dole. I wrote a book titled Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again. A little long title, but... And I've done this podcast uh, several episodes now. And in it, I've tried to define what's wrong in our country. Because we have a crisis going on in this country. It's a crisis of leadership. I don't know what's wrong, whether it's a lack of civility, the meanness has gotten out of control. And the truth is that in 1996, it, it, politics could be mean. In 1996, there could be a lack of civility at times. It's sort of, you know, something's wrong, but you can't put your finger on it. And I'm not sure in my book or in these podcasts I've addressed it totally. But it's sort of like I heard a, a Supreme Court justice used to say about obscenity. It's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. And when it comes to what's wrong in this country and what used to be right, you know it when you see it. And all you have to do is look at Bob Dole and you see it. You see what's what was right about America. He lived the American dream. He lived an extraordinary, extraordinary life uh, from the battlefield, to his years in politics, to his years after politics. And as I said, it was the proudest vote I ever cast. And we can learn from him, as he wrote in that last op-ed. We've got to learn from him and follow that example and bring the country together because too many people sacrificed way too much to let it go. And there's no question in my mind that... Bob Dole, history is going to remember Bob Dole as the greatest American of the last 50 years. And it really doesn't matter that he never was elected president of the United States. When we come back, 
we're going to listen to his farewell address from June 11th, 1996. And I hope that you'll listen to the message. It may not be soaring rhetoric like Ronald Reagan, but it's about those things that you're going to look back on your own life one day and say, these are what I'm proudest of. And it's going to be the hard things, the things where you got things done uh, that were important, where you had to work with people and compromise with people and find solutions. And that was something Bob Dole could be really proud of that he really did. So when this comes, when our show comes back, I hope you'll listen to his farewell address to the United States Senate and take it to heart because it's a message that means more now than it did when Bob Dole made it nearly a quarter century ago. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. June 11th, 1996, was one of the most emotional days of my life and one of the most beautiful days of our lives because of all the tributes and the warmth and the love that was in that room for Bob Dole. Um, It was uh, quite an event because he was not only stepping down from his role as majority leader of the Senate, he was giving up his Senate seat. And he loved the Senate. Majority Leader, Senator Dole of Kansas, is recognized. I appreciate very much the resolution just passed. Will it be in big letters or neon? Or... <laughs> I know it can't have any political advertising on it, but... Just to have the name out there in lights the next few months might be helpful.
136 years ago this summer. A committee arrived in Springfield, Illinois. Senator Simon probably knows the story. To formally notify Abraham Lincoln that the Republican Party had nominated him to run for president. And history records that Lincoln's formal reply to the news was just two sentences long. And then as he surveyed the crowd of friends, as I surveyed the crowd of friends here in the galleries and on the floor, who had gathered outside his home, he said, and now I will no longer defer the pleasure of taking each of you by the hand. So I guess as Lincoln said then, 136 years ago, if all of us are leaving this year, and I'm only one, I know we have the same thoughts and the same emotions. If we could all go out and shake hands of all the people who are responsible for us being here, it would take a long, long time. You begin with your family. You obviously begin with your parents, your brothers, your sisters. And you think about all the support they have. And I've attended, as some others have here, town meetings all over America. And they're pretty much the same. They're good people. They have real questions. And they like real answers. And I always thought that differences were a healthy thing, and that's why we're also healthy, because we have a lot of differences in this chamber. I've never seen a healthier group in my life. <laughs> and then there are those on our... And I don't want my friends in the press gallery to fall out of their seats in shock. But let me add, in acknowledging those who have worked here in this building, I also salute you. And I think it's fair to say that we didn't always agree with everything you said or wrote. But I know that what you do off this floor is as vital to American democracy as anything we do on it. And we have to keep that in mind. So I would say that it's been a great ride few bumps along the way. I've learned a lot from people in this room. I've even gone to Senator Byrd when I was the majority leader to ask his advice on how to defeat him on an issue. <laughs> and if you know Robert Byrd as I do, he gave me the answer. <laughs> but it wasn't easy. I mean, this man's determined. And I know that in his book, and he's the great works about the Senate, I, in the first book, when I became the majority leader, he very candidly writes in his book, he had his doubts about this Bob Dole. Because I might be too partisan. Or I might not work with a minority leader. But as I've heard him say a number of times since, I demonstrated that I wasn't that partisan. And B, that I understood, if I understood one thing, as my successor will understand, is that unless the two leaders are working together, nothing's going to happen in this place. We have to trust each other, as Senator Daschle and I have, as Senator Mitchell and I have, as Senator Byrd and I have, and I had also great respect for Senator Mansfield and Senator Baker, though I didn't 
privilege of, I wasn't in the leadership at that time. And I would say to all those who've been in the leadership positions, it's a difficult life. And after two o'clock today, when somebody calls me about bringing up their amendment, I'll say, sorry with me. stand in your way. And I'm looking at one of the giants in the center right now, Senator Thurman. And I looked at others on the way in, Senator Byrd. And I thought about Senator Baker and Senator Dirksen and Senator Russell. And many, many more Democrats and Republicans who love this place, who made it work. And I repeat frequently the statement, I don't know that Senator Dirksen made it on the floor, but he made this statement, a billion here and a billion there, soon add up to real money. If only it'd be come back today, it would be a trillion here and a trillion there, soon add up to real money. And then there was my friend Hubert Humphrey. Nobody ever understood how Bob Dole and Hubert Humphrey could be such good friends. We didn't have a problem at all. And he used to save his own speeches. I never thought they were too long. I enjoyed every minute. And I remember in the hallway one day, we were talking about talk shows, and of course I was only watching talk shows in those days, but he was on every Sunday. Used to be issues and answers for the normal guest. For Hubert, it was issue and answer. And the time was up. Then there was Senator Mansfield, just the reverse. When he was on a Sunday show, it was, yep, nope, maybe. And ten minutes into the program, they're out of questions. I remember Russell Long. I remember during the Reagan landslide, I became... I was going to be chairman of the finance committee, I didn't know how to tell Russell. <laughs> and I didn't. <laughs> I said, who's going to tell Russell? Nobody's going to tell Russell. And Dave Durnberg was there, and I remember the, the first vote we had when I, I, I got to sit in the chair. But when they called the roll, they called the minority side first, and then the other side, and then Mr. Chairman. And I was all ready. This is my first aunt, and he voted aye. <laughs> and that's a true story. And then there's Phil Hart and Dan Inouye. We all met in Battle Creek, Michigan. Percy Jones General Hospital. Lieutenant Colonel Hart, Lieutenant Inouye, and Lieutenant Doe. We were all patients. The best bridge player at Percy Jones Hospital was Dan Inouye. Probably the, one of the best men I ever knew was Phil Hart. He had a flesh wound, flesh wound in his right elbow area. And from morning to night, he spent his time running errands 
or getting tickets to patients to the Detroit Tigers games. His wife was Jane Briggs, Briggs Stadium. Briggs owned the Tigers at that time. And it wasn't anything that Phil Hart wouldn't do, not only there, but when he came to the United States Senate. So I left my proxy, the last of the Percy Jones General Hospital Caucus, is Dan Inouye. I wrote him a letter today, said, you got my, my proxy? If anything comes up regarding Percy Jones General Hospital, which is closed, <laughs> vote me present. So, and I could go on and on, and I could, I'm not, as, not like Senator Byrd, because nobody can do the, with the way Senator Byrd does it. But you think of all these people who've come and gone, and all the new bright stars that are here today on both sides of the aisle. And one thing you know for certain, it's a great institution. I've learned another thing that we've all learned in this chamber, in this town. Your word is your bond. And if you don't keep your word around here, it doesn't make much difference what your amendment may be or whatever it may be. And it's important to all of us, as far as I know, Everybody that I know on either side's observed that rule. It's true in any business, any profession, but it's more true in politics. Because the American people are looking at us and they want us to tell the truth. Doesn't mean we have to agree. Doesn't mean we can't have different motivations. And I learned that leadership is a combination of background and backbone. And I learned a lot, as I said, from the likes of Senator Byrd and others I'd watched and watched. I know that Senator Warner, the first person ever mentioned to me that one day, I think we were having, well, we were both in the same place having lunch, and he said, you ought to think about running for leader. I said, me? So I thought about it. Except I thought Ted Stevens was going to be the leader. Where's Ted? But something happened on the way to the vote. And I walked out of there surprised. When I was, Howard Green held up his hand, I knew I must be the leader. So I would just say that uh, we all know how the political process works, and some people are cynical, and some people think it's awful, and some people don't trust us. But the people who watch us and think day in and day out have a better understanding. And some people would tell me, ask me, and I remember the speaker, the speaker's present somewhere, telling me just 10 minutes ago, he really understands now more about the Senate. We have different rules. I love the House of Representatives. I never wanted to be the House of Representatives here. I want to be the Senate. I want to be in the Senate where you can have unlimited debate, where any senator on either side on any issue can stand up and talk until they drop. And the record is held by the presiding officer, Senator Thurman. 20... 18 minutes.
And that's why you're seldom asked to be an after-dinner speaker, too, I might add. Sometimes around him, I think we have to have everything. We got to have total victory. I won't settle for less. It's got to be my way or no way. Well, Ronald Reagan said once, if I can get 90% of what I want, I'd call that a pretty good deal. 90% isn't bad. You get the other 10% later. It's a small amendment then. Some people never understand that. Take the 90, then work on the 10. I want to say, too, that I... And I've read that my resignation reflection of America. It's what America is all about. We come from different states and different backgrounds, different opportunities, different challenges in our life. And yes, the institution has its imperfections and our occasional her occasional inefficiency. And we're like America. We're still a work in progress in the United States Senate. So I would say to my colleagues, I remember way back when I ran for the Kansas legislature, we had a Democratic law librarian who thought young people ought to get involved in politics. So she found two Republicans, and two Democrats, and talked us into running for the state legislature. We didn't know anything about politics, didn't know what party we were in. We were students, veterans, going to school on the GI Bill. And I thought about which party to belong to, and I've said in jest from time to time, I went back to my hometown and went up to the courthouse and found out there were more Republicans than Democrats, and I became a committed Republican. <laughs> it's not quite accurate, but my parents were Democrats. And I remember the first time I was ever approached by a reporter. Here I was a brand new, I was a law student, brand new legislature. I didn't know anything about anything. And I said, well, what are you going to do now for your district or something in that case? I said, oh, I'm going to sit around, watch for a couple of days, and then stand up for what's right. Well, that's what we all do around here, and I hope I've done it over the years. And I've also been proud to be involved in nutrition programs. Somebody mentioned that earlier today. I remember working with Senator McGovern, and that crops up down in a conservative article saying that I can't be a conservative because I, I know George McGovern. I think George McGovern is a gentleman, and has always been a gentleman. But we worked together on food stamps, and I'll, I'll confess, when, we first, when I made my first tour with George McGovern, I said, this guy's running for president. I wasn't convinced. There are a lot of skeptics in this chamber, probably some on each side. If you can't have pure motives, it's always something political. But after being on that trip about two or three days, I changed my mind, and Senator Hollings was in the forefront of that effort. He remembers how bad it was in South Carolina. And so we worked together on food stamps and the WIC program and the school lunch program, particularly when it affected low-income Americans. And I think, as I look at it, No first-class democracy can treat its people like second-class citizens. And I remember standing on this floor managing the Martin Luther King holiday bill. We had the majority. It was a proud day for me. 
It's now a national holiday. And the first speech I ever made on the floor was April 14, 1969, about disabled Americans. And I, a lot of people in this room have worked on that program, and I know Senator Kennedy and Senator Harkin and Senator Dernberg when he was here. And Senator Jennings Randolph, before, maybe before many of you came, was in the forefront. We stood with many who couldn't stand on their own. And the highlight was passing the American Disabilities Act. 43 million Americans. They're not all seriously disabled, but there are many in wheelchairs, many who can't even sit up. And it was a very impressive sight to be at the White House the day that bill was signed by President Bush. And I'm forever grateful. I know Senator Kennedy and Senator Harkin and others are. Have you ever seen so many wheelchairs at the White House at a signing ceremony? Never. And now more and more Americans with disabilities are full participants in the process. They're in the mainstream. So, I remember in 1983, and I know Pat Moynihan remembers, we were standing right over in this aisle, we had a bipartisan commission on Social Security. We had met week after week, month after month, and it was about to go down the drain. We'd about given up. Everybody was just disgusted. We were getting short-tempered. We were Democrats and Republicans. The late John Hines was a member of that commission. The chairman of the finance committee, I was members, a member of Senator Moynihan was a member. And Senator Moynihan, I think just by chance or fate or whatever, happened to meet in this aisle on my right. And we said, we've got to try one more time to rescue Social Security. One more time. It wasn't a partisan issue. And we did. That afternoon, we convened three more people. We had five of the commission. And it wasn't long. We were back on track. And we finally made it happen. And 37 million people have gotten their checks on time. And I think I read in the Washington Post just this weekend, Social Security is going to be in pretty good shape until the year 2029. So that's a pretty good fix. And maybe a pattern, as I said earlier today, we can follow on Medicare for the long-term solution. Take it out of politics, as we did on Social Security. Make it work. Make it solvent. And the people who get the credit are the people who get the checks. 37 million of them. So we reached across partisan lines. So I... I worry a little about the future. I worry about our defenses. I know there are a lot of very talented people here who are going to continue to do that. I'm not here to make a partisan speech or even a partisan reference. But I would hope that we will keep in mind that there are still threats around the world. And also keep in mind that we're the envy of the world. I learned meeting with a lot of leaders as foreign leaders as leaders get to do in this business, and chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Helm, Senator Pell, and others, Senator Luger when he was chairman. I remember when the Berlin Wall came down, 
When the Soviet Empire collapsed, a lot of people started coming to America, and they were leaders. And they were young, and they were old, and they were men, and they were women. And they didn't come for foreign aid. The cynics said, oh, they're coming after more of our money. They knew we didn't have any. But for the first time in 70 years, in some cases, they had a right to travel. They could get on an airplane without checking with the government and waiting for a year, or two years, or three years. They could go to church. They could vote in all these basic rights that we take for granted. And they came to America. And I can still recall, some are now presidents, or like, like Wilenson. Some are leaders of their party. As they came to our offices, and I'm certain it was true in every other office, they didn't ask for money. They wanted to come to America to see America. They wanted to take a look at America. And I can recall almost everyone who left my office. Sometimes with tears streaming down their cheeks saying, we want to be like America. We are the envy of the world. That's why so many people want to be like we are. So we have lit liberty's torch with a glow that can truly light the world. That's what America is all about. We're much more than a place on a map. We're the United States. And we're a beacon of hope. We're a magnet for the oppressed. And a shield against those who would put the soul itself in bondage. And I think we did that in Kuwait. And we may be called on to do it again. And so I would close with, again, thanking all of my colleagues. I don't believe, just trying to think back, I don't think we've ever had any real disagreements. I remember one time, I remind the Democratic leader, that I offered an amendment that you thought you were going to offer. And I made a mistake. I wasn't trying to one-up the senator from South Dakota, so I withdrew my amendment. Then he offered the amendment. I think that's called civility. So I would close with my hero is Dwight Eisenhower. Because he was our supreme commander. He also came from Abilene, Kansas, born in Texas, but quickly moved to Kansas. <laughs> I'd say to Phil, <laughs> he's only two years old, it took a while, but in any event, this is his quote. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. And I think those words are just as good today as they were 35 years ago when President Eisenhower spoke them. We can lead or we can mislead as the people's representatives. But whatever we do, we will be held responsible 
We're going to be held responsible and accountable. And I'm not talking about 1996. I'm talking about any time or the next century. So the Bible tells us to everything there is a season. And I think my season in the Senate is about to come to an end. But the new season before he makes this moment far less the closing of one chapter than the opening of another. And we all take pride in the past, but we all live for the future. And I agree with the prairie poet Carl Sandburg who told us, yesterday is a wind gone down, a sun dropped in the west. I tell you that there is nothing in the world, only an ocean of tomorrows, a sky of tomorrows. And like everybody here, I'm an optimist. I believe our best tomorrows are yet to be lived. So I again thank you. God bless America and God bless the United States Senate. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now. <laughs>